0: Chapter 2 of Theodore Savage, A Story of the Past or the Future. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Jennifer Mazzacci. Theodore Savage, A Story of the Past or the Future by Cicely Hamilton. Chapter 2 while theodore savage paid his court to phillida rathbone the Carthaginian decision was the subject of more than conversation diplomatists and statesmen were busy while he drifted into love and dreamed through the sudden rumors that excited his fellows at the office in london for the most part journalism was guarded and reticent the threat of secession at first hardly mentioned but in nations and languages that favored secession the press was voicing the popular cry with enthusiasm that grew daily more heated. Through conflicting rumor, this at least was clear. At the next meeting of the Council of the League, its authority would be tested to the uttermost, since the measure of independent action demanded by the malcontent members would amount to a denial of the federal principle, to secession, in fact, if not in name. Reaction against central and unified authority was not a phenomenon of yesterday. It had been gathering its strength through years of racial friction, finding an adherent in every community that considered itself aggrieved by a decision of the council or award of the court of arbitration. And for years, it had taxed the ingenuity of the majority of the council to avoid open breach and defiance. Before open breach and its consequences, both sides had so far maneuvered hesitated compromised it had been left to a minor a very minor state to rush in where others feared to tread the flat refusal of a heady half-civilized little democracy to accept the unfavorable verdict of the court of arbitration was the spark that might fire a powder-barrel its frothy demonstrations ridiculous in themselves appealed to the combative instinct in others to race hatreds, old hurting feuds and jealousies. These found vent in answering demonstrations, outbursts of popular sympathy in states not immediately affected. The noisy rebel was hailed as a martyr and pioneer of freedom, and became the pretext for resistance to the council's oppression. There was no doubt of the extent of the regrouping movement of the nations, of the stirrings of a widespread combativeness which denounced federation as a system whereby dominant interests and races exploited their weaker rivals. With the meeting of the Council would come the inevitable clash of interests, the summons to the offending member of the League to retreat from its impossible position, and in case of continued defiance, the proposal to take punitive action. That proposal, to all seeming, must bring about a crisis. Those members of the League who had encouraged the rebel in defiance would hardly consent to cooperate in punitive measures, and refusal, withdrawal of their military contingents, would mean virtual secession and denial of majority rule. If collective excitement and anger ran high, it might mean even more than secession. There were possibilities, first hinted at, later discussed without subterfuge, of actual and armed opposition— Should the council attempt to enforce its decree and authority humanity once more was gathering into herds and growing sharply conscious alike of division and comradeship it was some time before theodore was even touched by the herding instinct and spirit apart in a delicate world of his own he concerned himself even less than usual with the wider interests of politics by his fellows in the distribution office He was known as an incurable optimist. Even when the cloud had spread rapidly and darkened, he saw strained relations through the eyes of a lover, and his mind, busied elsewhere, refused to dwell anxiously on incidents and disquieting possibilities. They intruded clumsily on his delicate world, and, so soon as might be, he thrust them behind him and slipped back to the seclusion that belonged to himself and a woman. All his life, thought and impulse for the time being was a negation, a refusal of the idea of strife and destruction. In his happy egoism, he planned to make and build a home and a lifetime of content. Now and again, and in spite of his reluctance, his veil of happy egoism was brushed aside, some chance word or incident forcing him to look upon the menace. There was the evening in Valance's rooms, for instance, where the talk settled down to the political crisis, and Holt, the long journalist, turned sharply on Valance, who supposed we were drifting into war. "'That's nonsense, Valance, nonsense! It's impossible, unthinkable!' "'Unpleasant, if you like,' said Valance, but not impossible. At least it never has been. "'That's no reason,' Holt retorted. "'We're not living yesterday.' There'll be no war, and I'll tell you why. Because the men who will have to start it daren't. He had a penetrating voice, which he raised when excited, so that other talk died down, and the room was filled with his argument. Politicians, he insisted, might bluff and use threats, menace with a bogey, shake a weapon they dared not use, but they would stop short at threats, maneuver for position, and retreat." Let loose modern science, mechanics, and chemistry, they could not. There was a limit to human insanity, if only because there was a limit to the endurance of the soldier. Unless you suppose that all politicians were congenital idiots and criminal lunatics out to make holocausts. What was happening at present was maneuvering pure and simple, neither side caring to prejudice its case by open admission that appeal to force was unthinkable each side hoping that the other would be the first to make the admission, each side trotting out the dummy soldiers that were only for show and would soon be put back in their boxes. War, he repeated, was unthinkable. Man, said a voice behind Theodore, does much that is unthinkable. Theodore turned that he might look at the speaker, Markham, something in the scientific line who had sat in silence with a pipe between his lips till he dropped out his slow remark your mistake he went on lies in taking these people statesmen politicians for free agents and in thinking they have only one fear look at meyer's speech this morning that's significant he has been moderate so far a restraining influence now he breathes fire and throws in his lot with the extremists what do you make of that merely said holt that meyer has lost his head In which happy state, suggested Valance, the impossible and unthinkable, mayn't frighten him. That's one explanation, said Markham. The other is that he is divided between his two fears, the fear of war and the fear of his democracy, which, being in a quarrelsome and restless mood, would break him if he flinched and applauds him to the echo when he blusters. And maybe, at the moment, his fear of being broken is greater than his fear of the impossible. At any rate, the threat is closer. The man himself may be reasonable, even now, but he is the instrument of instinctive emotion. Almost any man taken by himself is reasonable, and being reasonable, cautious. Meyer can think just as well as you and I, so long as he stands outside a crowd, but neither you nor I nor Meyer can think when we are one with thousands and our minds are absorbed into a jelly of impulse and emotion. I like your phrase about jelly, said Valance. It has an odd picturesqueness. Your argument itself, or rather your assertion, strikes me as a bit sweeping. All the same, Markham nodded, it's worth thinking over. Man in the mass, as a crowd, can only feel... There is no such thing as a mass mind or intellect, only mass desires and emotions. That is what I mean by saying that Meyer, whatever his intelligence or sanity, is the instrument of instinctive emotion. and instinctive emotion, hold, until it has been hurt, is damnably and owlishly courageous. It isn't clever enough to be afraid, not even of red murder or starvation by the million, or the latest thing in gas or high-explosive. Stir it up enough and it'll run on them, as the lemmings run to the sea. Holt snorted something that sounded like rot, and Valance, sprawling an arm along the mantelpiece, asked, Another of your numerous theories? If you like, Markham assented, but it's a theory deduced from hard facts. It's a fact, isn't it, that no politician takes a crowd into his confidence until he wants to make a fight of it. It's a fact, isn't it, that no movements in mass are creative or constructive, that simultaneous action, simultaneous thought always is and must be destructive. Set what we call the people in motion and something has got to be broken. The crowd life is still at the elementary, the animal stage. It has not yet acquired the human power of construction and the crowd, the people, democracy, whatever you like to call it, has been stirring in the last few years, getting conscious again, getting active, looking round for something to break, which means that the politician is faced once more with the necessity of giving it something to break. Naturally, he prefers that the breakage should take place in the distance, and league or no league, the eternal and obvious resource is war, which was not too risky, when fought with swords and muskets. But now, as Holt says, is impossible. Being a bit of a chemist, I'm sure Holt is right, but I'm also sure that man as a herd does not think. Further, I am doubtful if man as a herd ever finds out what is impossible except through the painful process of breaking his head against it. I'm a child in politics, said Valance, and I may be dense, but I'm afraid it isn't entirely clear to me whether your views are advanced or grossly and shamelessly reactionary. Neither, said Markham, or both. You can take your choice. I have every sympathy with the people, the multitude. It's hard lines that it can only achieve destruction, just because there is so much of it, because it isn't smaller. But I also sympathize with the politician in his efforts to control the destructive impulse of the multitude. And finally, In view of that progress of science of which Holt has reminded us and of which I know a little myself, I'm exceedingly sorry for us all. Someone from across the room asked, you make it war then? I make it war. We have had peace for more than a generation, so our periodic bloodletting is already a long time overdue. The League has staved it off for a bit, but it hasn't changed the human constitution and the real factor in the Carthanian quarrel, or any other, is the periodic need of the human herd for something to break, and for something to break itself against. Resistance and self-sacrifice, the need of them, the call of the lemming to the sea, and perhaps it's all the stronger in this generation because this generation has never known war and does not fear it. Education, said Holt, addressing the error, is general and compulsory has been so for a good many years the inference being that the records of previous wars and incidentally of the devastation involved are not inaccessible to that large proportion of our population which is known as the average man as printed pages yes markham agreed but what proportion even of a literate population is able to accept the statement of a printed page as if it were a personal experience As we're not all fools, Holt retorted, I don't make it war. I hope you're right for my own sake, said Markham, good temperedly. He knocked out his pipe as he spoke and made ready to go while Theodore looked after him, interested for the moment disturbingly. Markham's unemotional and matter of fact acceptance of periodic bloodletting made rumors suddenly real. And for the first time, Theodore saw the Carthanian imbroglio as more than the substance of telegrams and articles, something human, actual, and alive. Saw himself, even Philida, concerned in it through a medley of confused and threatening shadows. For the moment he was roused from his self-absorption and thrust into the world that he shared with the common herd of men. He and Philida were no longer as the gods apart with their lives to make an Eden. They were little human beings, the sport of a common human destiny. He remembered how eagerly he caught at Holt's condemnation of Markham as a crank and Valence's next comment on the crisis. We had exactly the same scare three or was it four years ago? This is the trouble about Transylvania all over again, just the same alarums and excursions that fizzled out quietly in a month or six weeks, and the chances are that Carthania will fizzle out too. Of course it will, Holt declared with emphasis, and proceeded to demolish Markham's theories. Theodore left before he had finished his argument. As explained dogmatically in Holt's penetrating voice, the intrigues and dissensions of the Federal Council were once more unreal and frankly boring." the argument satisfied but no longer interested, and ten minutes after Markham's departure, his thoughts had drifted away from politics to the private world he shared with Phillida Rathbone. For very delight of it, he lingered over his courtship, finding charm in the presence of uncertainty long after it had ceased to exist. To Phillida also, there was pleasure not only in the winning, but in the exquisite game itself. Once or twice, when Theodore was hovering near avowal, she deferred the inevitable, eluded him with laughter, asked tacitly to play a little longer. In the end, the avowal came suddenly, on the flash and impulse of a moment, when Phillida hesitated over one of his gifts, a print she had admired on the wall of his sitting-room, duly brought the next day for her acceptance. No, I oughtn't take it. It's one of your treasures, she remonstrated. If you'd take all I have and me with it, he stammered. That was the crisis of the exquisite game and pretense of uncertainty was over. End of chapter 2. Recording by Jennifer Mazzucci.